0: What's going on everybody? Hello again and welcome back to another episode of The World Report with me Jean-Luc Watch and stop the music we don't got time for that today because we just had one of the biggest trades of the year finally take place in the nba damian lillard is now a milwaukee buck that is right he is out of portland he is gone vamonos amigos goodbye see you later i probably got that wrong but whatever we you, <laughs> I, my spanish It's a little rusty but you get what i'm saying he is finally Out of there. Portland is no longer the home of of Damian Lillard, and now he is at the home of Cream City itself, Milwaukee, and the home of the Bucks with Giannis Antetokounmpo as his running mate, finally the number two to the number one on the roster, and now is in a prime position to get his shot at a title. This news blew up all over the internet. I as quickly as I could got on here so I could record everything that's going on because this is a very volatile, volatile trade because of what this trade has done for the favored odds of winning a championship, at least coming out of the East to get to the NBA Finals with now bolstering the Bucks all the way to the top of the list, at least in my estimation, because let's backtrack a little bit and talk about how we got here. Damon Lillard wanted out and it was a question of where would he go. He said he wants to go to Miami and solely wants to go to Miami. Then the Blazers just sit and don't make a move at all. Entertain talks and disentertain talks. Demand so much and then everything falls apart. And now we get a situation where a three-team trade got him out of Portland but it was kind of perplexing when first seeing the deal because of the fact that so many other teams had better things to offer so many other teams had better assets in terms of the amount to be able to give Portland the desired tools necessary to build around people like school innocent like Anthony Simons and like the young core of guards that they have at their disposal in order to get the next era of Blazers basketball up and running at least on a good track so that they could actually have a foundation to be able to compound and build upon but no they went the route of getting June Holiday and DeAndre Ayton and again a 2029 first round draft pick who's gonna be some high school from way 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 down the line coming back up to be able to play ball And so it's a little confusing, to be perfectly honest, because this doesn't really set them up for the betterment of themselves in terms of to help bolster and support the youth that they have, but they went into business for themselves. They didn't capitulate to what their star player wanted. They instead did what they felt was best for business. But even though, even from looking at it now, it still doesn't look like it's best for business. But you know what? We don't care. You know why? Because Damian Lillard is out of Portland and no longer in that horrible franchise, at least horribly managed franchise, now on a winning situation. And with that being the case, we can now sit here and say, Damian Lillard, you now have a chance to win a title. You now have a shot to achieve the dream that you have been pining for ever since you got into the league. This is exactly why we are so adamant that player loyalty, while we respect it, absolutely. Oftentimes, especially in today's league, it doesn't get you anywhere because teams won't actively support and build around you. And you have to push your weight as a player to get what you want out of the situation even when you give them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Again, this is exactly why I was so happy when LeBron got out of Cleveland because Cleveland was a bum, bum of a franchise that didn't do anything to actively get him the desired help necessary, the legitimate help necessary, to actively win a championship because of the fact that, yes, they got Shaq and they got Ben Wallace. Oh, we oui. no, they got an old Shaq and a decrepit Ben Wallace. Both of them way out of their prime, or excuse me, Shaq was even in even worse shape than Ben Wallace when Ben Wallace got there. But regardless of which, they couldn't do anything. That wasn't nowhere close to the caliber of talent necessary to get a title, even with people like Dejan Stojkovic and Larry Hughes and others. It wasn't a supporting cast built to act to actually win a championship going up against people outside of their conference. And now, what happened? He demanded out or rather he used his free agency and got out of there and more power to him so glad he did it and it paved the way for what we see now with every and for every Kevin Durant anomaly that you have using this player empowerment to absolute horrible games in charge of for the rest of the league you'll get people like Damian Lillard who will use this player empowerment demand their way out get their way out and get put in for my money, a better situation than even they wanted when they first argued for a trade. And that's exactly where Damian Lillard is right now. Damian Lillard is in a better situation with the Milwaukee Bucks than he ever would have been with the Miami Heat because now you are the number two behind one of the best top ten players in the world today in Giannis Antetokounmpo. With a supporting cast that, mind you, was not lost in this trade and they still have all of their assets available and they have only improved from June holiday then regressed from June holiday. You have every type of depth as well as floor spacing as well as a number one guy, Giannis Antetokounmpo, that you can run with and trust and also support with your own production of 30-plus points a game, with his production in terms of Giannis of 30-plus points per game. With everybody else on the roster, averaging between 12 and 15 points a game, at least when that starting lineup, and great defensive versatility, you have a prime opportunity to be the piece to send this team back to a title like they won all those years ago, or rather recently, a couple years ago. This is phenomenal. This changes everything in terms of the Eastern Conference. This puts this team, for my money probably tied with the best odds to get to a championship out of the East with the Boston Celtics. Boston Celtics made a bunch of moves in the offseason, specifically with Kristaps Porzingis and moving on from Marcus Smart to get more size in. Again, 7'3", Kristaps Porzingis, Porzingis, a unicorn himself as well as some other pieces. It is great for them, or rather it was great for them. They looked like an unstoppable force out of the Eastern Conference because now they had Robert Whitaker. And on the, the Time Wizard himself, the Time Lord, excuse me, himself, and Al Horford. And now, Christoph Rosengas to help stretch the floor as well as can be a real dominant post-presence in terms of defensively. Oh, this seemed like this team now had every single piece or every single weakness plugged up. And they were built to win and run through everybody else. And their toughest competition would have been the Milwaukee Bucks. But even I had doubts that the Bucks had the ability to compete with them on this level. But now, with Milwaukee getting Damian Lillard, this changes everything. This changes absolutely everything. This I have them even now for to get out of the East. Because this is a situation where you have two teams of elite depth. Elite talent, elite def- defensive ability, switch ability, transition offense, and the ability to be able to play, whether they're in front or behind, with just the same level of intensity. On top of having one of the most clutch players in the NBA of this generation, in Damian Lillard, alongside a former MVP, excuse me, two-time MVP, and a former defensive player of the year. This is... Everything Damian Lillard could have dreamed up. This is everything Damian Lillard could have dreamed up. And this is everything that we as a fan base could have dreamed up when it came to Damian Lillard having an opportunity to win. Having an opportunity to be successful And barring injury. This is going to be phenomenal. If this team can stay healthy, this team is built to make a deep run and arguably get to the finals. In all reality. Because this team, like I said before, is built with every single piece necessary for a championship squad. I always lauded this team and always had them as favorites out of the East to get to the NBA Finals because of how completely well-rounded they were built. And the best thing about this whole ordeal is that the Bucks now have a definitive number two with the Milwaukee Bucks and their rotation of athletes and players. It's been a situation where even when they won a championship, it has been contested who is the dominant number two on that squad. It works for a number of years. Chris Middleton again the dominant scorer, twenty-one to twenty-four points a game. A marksman from three, a phenomenal mid-range shooter. The brother again who didn't maybe have the best of handles, but in terms of just an outright scorer. Oh, he was great. He was phenomenal. And then as years going on, it turned into June Holiday. Maybe is the second most valuable piece on the team with this defense and the underrated ability to score fifteen to twenty points every game, as well as have decent three-point shooting. Not phenomenal, but but something to where when you need him to come through, he can not come through. Now, maybe the postseason this last year didn't show that in the best of light, but regardless of which, he was seen as the second best player. And since that was the ordeal with this team, what did we see? We saw some fluctuation in their production since that championship run. Yeah, they were always good to great, but it seemed like they had lost a little bit of something. That little bit of something may have been that... Now, of course, we know injuries and stuff also took hold of that team in the playoffs. Yes, we get that completely. I understand that. Stuff happens. Life happens. I'm not discounting that at all. But despite that, now with having Damian Lillard as the definitive second-best player on the squad, this makes everything on this team so much easier. Because now, on the offensive end, they have... While they lost defense in June holiday. Understandable. Offensively, this team just unlocked a whole new dimension. Because now you can run Damian Lillard, Chris Middleton, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Brooke Lopez, and whoever else you want as the other guard. And make this team truly a threat from anywhere else on the floor. From anywhere. You can run five out with this squad if you wanted to. Brooke can be on the perimeter. Dame can be on the perimeter. Middleton can be on the perimeter. Shoot, Dame will stretch the perimeter all the way to the logo. You now not have a Steph-esque level threat in Damian Lillard that causes gravity all the way when he crosses the half court. Coupled with an interior gravitational force, that is Giannis Antetokounmpo that will make it so that you have to double him on the inside. Good gosh, that opens up the floor for everybody else and subsequently also opens up the floor for the two biggest stars in Dane and Giannis because now you have a situation where both of those players, because now you can't sag off of anybody and you have to commit to both of those players because of how much they're a threat from their preferred scoring locations. You can't double anybody on this team. Or if you do, you're essentially sacrificing a dominant score for a great shooter. That's what you're doing. This is phenomenal. What they lost in defensive ability, they gained in exorbitantly more offensive versatility. This team is scary. This team is outright horrifying. This team is combined essentially a modern-day version of if Steph and Shaq played together. Again, I'm not comparing Dame to Steph. I'm not comparing Giannis to Shaq. What I am comparing is is what is essentially the doomsday protocol for the NBA league as a whole when Steph and DeMarcus Cousins were going to play together. Everybody remembers that. Amidst the whole height of the, the Golden State Warriors run on the NBA. When Kevin Durant was also there and everybody was thinking, oh, man, this team just can't get any better. Once DeMarcus Cousins got on that team, it was a situation where we were all, at least I was saying, the biggest thing that we cannot let happen to this league, arguably potentially even or just as threatening as KD going to the Warriors, was if the Warriors get a dominant big man on their roster, that's the one weakness in their game. That's the one weakness in their game. They don't have somebody that can be a force down low to offset Steph's ability to shoot from the outside. Because at least if Steph misses, we can get a board. Or at least we can double Steph and hope and pray that our man-to-man coverage down low is enough to stop whoever they got at big man. But when DeMarcus Cousins got to the Warriors... It was outright pandemonium because now they don't have any weaknesses whatsoever. None. Dominant defensive, undom- dominant, permanent defense all around. And now an interior force in Demarcus Cousins, who offensively, before the injury, was an absolute juggernaut. And then defensively could hold his own, not the greatest defensive player, but could hold his own. This was something that we, that we were like, just throw away the throw away the NBA. Throw away the outright. Just throw it in the garbage. That is what DeMarcus Cousins meant too, to the Golden State Words when he initially signed a dominant defensive or dominant offensive, excuse me, presence and size, an elite caliber big man, to couple with Steph Curry's limitless shooting was insane. Now you actively have that reality in Milwaukee not to the same degree at least in terms of Steph and and or well excuse me on the side of Stephen Curry because Damian Lillard is not Stephen Curry but he has shown he can shoot from similar range with just a similar efficiency. We know he's one of the greatest shooters just pure shooters. We know that about Dame. He is up there. Absolutely. And one of the best scorers in the NBA today. Averaged thirty-two points last year. Can pull from the local just like Steph. We know this. He is insane as a player, as an offensive juggernaut, unrivaled by nearly anybody else in the league. And now you couple that with somebody like a Giannis Cooper, who is unrivaled by nearly anybody else in the league down low. Oh, it's it's a pick your poison. It's a how how do you want it? If we're down by three, I can give it to Dane. If we're down by two, I can give it to Giannis. If we need fast break, we can have Dane pull it from 40 off transition or have Giannis take it directly to the cup or have Giannis drive it and pass it back out to Dane and then Dane kicks it back out to Chris Middleton or kicks it to his right to Chris Middleton and then Chris Middleton kicks it back to Brook Lopez all the way on the other side of the perimeter. And then Brook Lopez passes it back down low to Giannis because they've overcommitted on everybody. There's no offensive liability on this team. There isn't any. And they have the defensive ability still, even without June Holiday, to be a threat to anybody else in the league. Even more so now because if they do get a stop, it's even more of a guaranteed bucket because of who they have on the roster. Of course we know, ooh, how in the world is Dane and Giannis going to coexist? Well, we know that because they both want to play with each other. Damon said he wants to play with Giannis on social media and just in general. He has said it. Giannis went to his front office and said, and, or excuse me, went to the media and said, I need somebody that can hoop, that can play, and I need people that can build around me in order for us to win. I'm about winning championships. I'm about winning. If this organization isn't about winning, then I have no business playing it. Paraphrasing, of course, that's essentially what he said. Did what Kobe did on LA when LA was was not getting over the hump. Of course, LA was far worse than what Giannis' situation is, but, but the point still stands. Giannis pushed his weight around to get the organization to get something to happen, to make him want to stay there. Because he wants to be a buck for life, but he'll leave in a heartbeat if he sees that you all, are, as an organization, are not doing your job to make it so that I have the best quality talent around me to put myself in a position for a championship. We know that. And Giannis did just that, demanded and forced the hand of the front office, and they came through and delivered. Just like with Kobe, when he demanded a trade, and they got Pau Gasol and Lamar Odom. And they built, they rebuilt the Lakers to be a championship contending squad. And they got two titles out of it. Giannis did that exact same thing, and it paid off. Paid off. It's going to pay off in a big way because this team is one of the favorites to get to a title. This is beautiful. I can't wait to see this squad go through the NBA. It's, it's now a four-man race for the NBA championship. In terms of favorites. Of course. Celtics in the water. Celtics, Bucks, Nuggets, and Lakers. And we can put Miami as a, well, I would put Miami as a dark horse because they made it with nearly the identical squad that they have right now. But I forgot that they lost Gabe Vincent and Max Struce. Or excuse me, I forgot that I initially said that they lost Gabe Vincent and Max Struce. So no, they don't even have a shot anymore. This is real. That this has become a four-team race to a championship. This is a four-team race to a title. And the Bucs have handily put themselves at the forefront of that conversation to potentially be viewed as favorites to take everything that the NBA has to give and the NBA teams are going to throw at them and just roll through whoever they want to roll through. Because they have depth. They got coaching. They got two Bonafide stars now. They have length. They have strength. They have defense. They have even better shooting than they initially had. And they have the mentality of we need to win. They have everything necessary to get to a title again. And if you have them as favorites, I don't blame you. I don't blame you at all. This is insane. This is insane. They have essentially their own big three. Chris Middleton, Damian Miller, and June Holiday. Or excuse me. And Giannis Antetokounmpo. My apologies. So used to saying June Holiday on that team for so much. Dame Chris Middleton, and Giannis Antetokounmpo. A three-headed monster offensively. With two of the three being able to hold their own very well defensively. Of course, you know Giannis defensive player of the year. And Chris Middleton being... A good, too great perimeter defender. We've seen what this team can do. Now we're about to see this team elevate itself to an even bigger and even more dominant offensive style that's going to complement their still defensive oriented mindset with the ability to spread the floor even further than anybody thought this team would have been capable of with the addition of Damian Lillard being able to, again, pull from 40 feet out with ease. With them being a dominant scoring threat that is going to cause teams to double, the possibilities are endless of what this team can do. It's incredible. It is phenomenal. It is something that we have been asking for it's a better situation than what Damian little would have gotten to when he if he went to miami though that was where he wanted to go and this is his opportunity to finally get the fair shake at having an opportunity to be a champion as a top 75 player as somebody who's a multi-time all-star as somebody that we have all deemed as one of the not only most loyal, but one of the best offensive players of this generation, one of the coldest players of this generation, now has got a fair shake in a roster built to win, backing him while he is backing Giannis to put him in the best situation to get a championship. It's now or never for Dame, right in the middle of his prime. Barring injury, barring injury, this is exactly what we have been asking Damian Lillard to be at in terms of situational standpoint. And now we get to see Damian Lillard flourish in a system and in a culture and on a team that is built for success. It almost brings a tear to your eye because it's something we never imagined. All the memes of Damian Lillard, all the loyalty on 100, but accolades on zero. Now it's going to have opportunity not to be one of the unsung favorites of the league, like we've seen in the past, who stuck with their squad, did everything that we wanted a player to do as an NBA fan. Show loyalty, show respect, show wanting to grind it out, wanting to go, and go, go through the mud to get. Success, not taking the easy with all of that, but not having anything to show for it now you have an opportunity to show something for all of that painstaking work and all of that painstaking sacrifice that you gave to Portland. Forget Portland for all of their travesties as an organization never amounted to anything because of their inability to to legitimately setting set damn little up for any type of success. Forget him. Now that chapter's done and now we get to see a brighter future for Damian Lillard. One that I can't wait to see and it's going to be utterly phenomenal. I cannot wait for it. Now we have to switch gears on this show to talk about Big Bang Jang knocking out Joe Joyce in three rounds of what I consider the knockout of the year for this year. And because we're talking about a boxing or combat sports portion of the show, we have to start stepping. Into the ring, that's right. Let's get it started. Round one underway of this boxing portion of the World Report, and we have to discuss how in the world did this transpire? What took place in this fight that caused Joe Joyce to get knocked out in three rounds? First stop, before we even cover that, I was right. Yet again, did not call it. I have been on an absolute roll on this level of boxing, or at least for this year. I've been phenomenal calling fights this year. Oh, man. I call me Nostradamus. I am the omnipotent one. No, I'm just messing. I'm just kidding. Let me not be <laughs> I'm just messing. But I have been showing, hey, you need to stick around on this channel because I know what I'm talking about. And Joe Joyce apparently didn't listen because he fell into These same traps that I said he was going to fall into in this fight. He is not able to adjust to anything. This man is so set in his ways as a boxer that he can't rip away and add new habits to him. And when he gets hit, what happens? He reverts back to the style that won him all those fights before because now he is uncomfortable in a stylistically different approach that doesn't suit what he is as a boxer. And he Kiki can't get away from it. He can't differentiate himself from it. He has to and will always revert back to I'm the juggernaut. I'm just going to walk forward and take hits. And that's exactly what happened in this fight. And Jang was out right flawless when it came to this fight he was comfortable he was calm he was cool he was collected he did not push the issue even though he knew exactly what needed to land in this fight which was the big straight left which again did land in this fight on a consistent basis but he didn't force it One of the things that we see many fighters fall into a habit of is that when they find something that works the second time around when they're facing an opponent, they force that issue to kingdom come. Instead of properly setting it up so that when they do take advantage of the opening that they're looking for to land the game plan needed punch, then they falter and aren't able to do it they haven't properly set it up. Giant set it up flawlessly. He was patient. He controlled distance instead of blocking and peering all of Joyce's punches when he was coming forward. He instead took small steps forward and let Joyce dictate the pace by letting him use that probing jab style, that new style that Joyce was trying to do to protect his eye, having his right hand up in his, up up by his face and his left hand constantly probing and jabbing out. Zhang didn't try to overcommit on those jabs because he was just trying to land anything. He let Joyce try to implement that game plan, try to keep him at bay, control distance, methodically pushed his way inside, and then when the opening was completely there, he took advantage of it, but he opened that he opened up the ability to use the left hand and the ability to rise up concerns and Joyce from the fight previously by going to the body, by just subtly jabbing to the body, not trying to force anything that wasn't there. Going downstairs, scoring points, getting some traction, getting some momentum, getting Joyce to have to at least think about what's coming at him And not just only worry about, oh, I'm getting hit in the face. Now, I can lose this on points if I don't actively counteract this, the the, the scoring opportunities that Zhang is taking upon himself to put himself ahead. And then on top of that, he was managing his stamina. Again, yes, I know it only landed; it only it ended in three. But even when Zhang did eventually come forward, even when Zhang did eventually start opening up his offense to the head and pushing that straight left into Joyce's face, we've seen where Zhang will still get tired. You'll see elevated levels of, or at least elevated signs of, okay, he's, he has legitimately gone into his gas tank to at least some degree from Zhang because Zhang like I said before has had a plethora of history when it comes to having stamina issues I talked about it in the last fight I said that was gonna be the main thing that was going to give him the biggest opportunity to lose is if stamina takes hold of him again like it did in the Hergovich fight and like it did in the later rounds of the Joyce fight that inevitably got stopped but Zhang was instead even more methodical. Again, that patient pace that he put on himself worked perfectly even in the early rounds because he looked fresh all fight. Normally by round three, you would see some level of fatigue. You would see some level of concern. You would see some level of gas tank reduction on the side of Jean. But instead, it wasn't evident at all. Wasn't breathing through his mouth. Wasn't heaving wasn't over committing was just calm that's all he was and with that calmness it allowed him to use his left hand once the opening actively came available to land on joe and then from there systematically break him down and set him up for the parts that he didn't see coming he set him up for that right hook off that lead hand he set him up for that but Throwing that left straight. When he threw that left straight, it caused Joyce to move over. Again, we talk about Joyce not being able to move his head. Joyce actively tried to move his head. Yes, he did. And she was. He's not good at it. But even still, he attempted to get his head off the center line. And with that being the case, while it's a good tactic, he went and got predictable. Always moving to Always moving to the inside of Zhang's left hand in order to avoid it and going to his lead hand. Which, again, you should always do, never go toward the power hand, but he did it in such a predictable fashion that Zhang just consistently set it up. It started out by going to the body with the straight left, getting him to react. Then you saw the subtle movement of Joyce start moving to the inside of Zhang whenever he would throw that left in any way, shape, or form, even when he fainted it. And so because of that, and because of the way he was objectively, or or excuse me, because of the way that he was outright just circling the ring at the start of the fight, Zhang knew he could set up that right hand and that right hook. He just had to get Joyce to go into the punch. And what did he do? Set it up by going to the body with the straight left and then eventually in round two, going to the head and landing cleanly on Joyce, which caused Joyce to what? Get out of that defensive style. That was absolutely horrendous for him. And once that happened and he was able to consistently connect with Joyce with his big left hand, then he lulled him into a trap, got him to bite on that left hand, threw it and committed to it. Yes, but he didn't, he didn't put all his power into it. Unlike the first right, he didn't put all of his power into that, that that power left straight. He instead, threw half power with that left straight, caused Joyce to go to the right and then follow up with the right hook immediately after, and caught Joe Joyce with one of the cleanest KOs of the year, and broke the unbreakable. It's different that we've seen; we never had seen Joyce hurt before the first fight. He got him hurt, and that was an accomplishment in and of itself because of how strong and how tough Joyce is. That's objectively true, despite what we are going to say from about Joyce after this fight. But we've never seen Joyce hit the canvas. Never seen him even touch the canvas. Never even seen him get down to a knee. And we saw Zhang with one clean shot. Absolutely destroy that man. I mean picture perfect. His his lights were out before he hit the ground. That's how strong Zhang was. And that's how perfect that counter was. Because he got Joyce to commit to a counter When he didn't know that he was getting lulled into a counter of his own, Joyce started throwing his own right straight at Zhang once he got out of the way of that power straight that Zhang threw. He wasn't prepared for the follow up, he was only prepared for the left straight being the biggest ploy. And what happened? His forward momentum, coupled with Zhang's power and Zhang's full commitment to that right hook, all of that consecutively compounded on the force of the punch and once it caught joyce on the chin it was game over no day state no hurt state just outright knockout that's what that was absolute perfection and this puts joyce in a very concerning situation this knockout from john to joyce really has us questioning where Joyce can go from here. How is it that Joyce is going to actually be able to improve from this fight now that not only he couldn't adapt to a game plan that worked against him, but he got beat when he tried to adapt in a quicker fashion. It shows that he can't be taught new tricks. He can't. It's impossible at this point in his career because he is, like I said at the start of this episode, or rather at the start of this segment, and at the start of the prediction episode of this fight. You can go look at my, on my channel. I probably have a tag at the end of the video so you can see exactly how right I was. It was a situation where Zhang where exposed a problem in Joyce, but Joyce, because of how much success he's gotten from The previous tactic of being able to walk through fire without getting burned. Now, he can't adapt to it because he doesn't understand how to avoid the fire in the first place. He doesn't have great defensive ability. He doesn't have great speed. His footwork is absolutely horrible. Especially going backwards. His defensive game plan when he tried to fight Zhang was utterly ludicrous. The style, it looked terrible. It was just this. It was this. It was this ter- absolutely horrendous looking head movement. It wasn't even effective head movement. It was just move because I don't want to get hit. Keep my head off the center line just from the jump just because. Just because. Which again, I understand fainting, moving, trying to get your opponent to react. I get that level changing. All of that is good game playing when it's put to use in an effective and and dedicated format. When it's done with a purpose, rather than when it's done just to be done, it doesn't bode the same effects. And for Joyce, that's exactly what was going on. Wasting energy, wasting space, wasting time by using a head movement that wasn't ineffective at all. Because when Zhang actually committed to punches, what happened? He didn't move his head. He got caught flush. He was like a jouster trying to hold his javelin out to just keep him at bay but then when he actually got within range in terms of John getting in range of Joyce his head stayed centered, just like always it was he was he was scared that's how he fought Joyce fought scared Joyce did not fight with the purpose Joyce did not fight with the game plan to win he fought with the game plan to survive and he was caught between two styles for a fighter like joyce he can't fight he can only fight one way because of how he was taught from his coach and due to the fact of how late he got into the game he wasn't able to be instilled with the stuff necessary to take him over the hump of being not just a contender but a champion all the toughness all the power all the chin that he's got on to tank punches all of that is phenomenal But it's even better when you have solid fundamentals behind it. And Joyce didn't didn't have that. We're blinded by it because of how much he was able to walk through everything and just have a solid jab and a solid straight right and just power to break down anybody. Okay, boom, we overlooked the absolute lack of fundamental skill against somebody that actually knows what they're doing against somebody who's a silver medalist against somebody who's an olympian against somebody who has the skills to actually challenge for world title contention like jean joyce didn't learn that he didn't learn that and whoever trained him in this camp did utter disservice to him by how they actually got him fighting in this fight he was caught between two styles. The second he got hit with a legitimate shot, with a legitimate straight left from Zhang, he immediately got out of that defensive game plan and got out of that trying to protect his shin and joust around the ring. He got out of that, that probing jab style that wasn't effective. It was just throwing just to keep him at bay at a given point in time. Once he got f- caught flush, got out of that immediately. Immediately. And actually looked more comfortable than he did when he was in that defensive stance, which was horrible. But he looked more comfortable when he just fought like Joe Joyce. But that's exactly what led him to get it knocked out. He can't learn anything else at this point. Unless he takes a full six months to a year potentially. And break himself down and build himself back up from a fundamental standpoint. But on top of being 37 years old, that may be too little too late. It very well could be. We're looking at a fighter now who has gotten outright exposed. For lack of a better term. Utterly exposed. In all facets. His power can only get him so far. His chin can only get him so far. And if anything, let's talk about his chin. His chin may well, may very well be gone because of the accumulation of punches. It is incredible to have a granite chin. Absolutely. Problem is, when you rely on that so much, once it runs out, what does that mean for you? We've seen chins go at a moment's notice. Again, Roy Jones Jr., when he went back down from heavyweight to Well, uh, 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 175 to fight Antonio Tarver, won the close fight in the first fight, second time around, got knocked out, knocked out, knocked out, clean, and was never the same. His chin left him once he got back down from heavyweight. We've seen it. We've seen it so much. We know why we laud Evander Holyfield in his toughness and his Iron Man chin. It's because of the fact that he had a chin and he could eat shots, but it was until, it was up up to a point. But even when, again, everybody's chin life cycle had a certain point, he had such good defensive ability that he didn't need to rely on it. Mike Tyson had a phenomenal chin, but he didn't rely on his chin. He relied on head movement, sound fundamentals, incredible understanding of the fundamentals of boxing, and defense to keep him safe. Again, with Mike Tyson, it wasn't until one Customado died and after we winning his championship that he got people that weren't in his corner to let him go awry. And while we saw the career of Mike Tyson go the way it went. Again, if Mike Tyson had customado and or Don King didn't do what Don King does, which is ruin boxers, take away his team, take away the people that actually cared about him and put Don King's own team around him in order to train him, and had and if Tyson had the actual people that cared about him to stay in his corner and had the team that got him to a title to stay with him throughout his entire career, oh, I don't think he would have lost to him in the Holyfield. But that's me. But regardless of which, it's a situation where both of those fighters they did not rely on the chin to just go and run through everybody, sound fundamental ability coupled with great toughness and a great ability to take punches if you do get caught, allow for them to be successful. Joe, not Joe, Joe Furcher had a phenomenal chin, but he also had instinctual defensive head movement. Phenomenal. A rhythm of its own that nobody's been able to replicate. George Foreman had a phenomenal chin, but once he got to the second half of his career, after he came out of retirement at age of 45, or what, 43, 45? He didn't train with Archie Moore to understand better defensive awareness, better defensive soundness, and better ability to set up shots and be an all-around, more technical boxer to make up for his lack of ability to be a mover because he never had great feet. He was athletic at his prime, absolutely but he understands how to mitigate the loss of footwork in his older age with technical soundness. Joe Joyce at this point in time, however, and with how quickly his clock is running out, he doesn't have a 15-year break to recover. He probably doesn't have the ability in terms of boxing talent nor just athleticism as a whole to be able to keep up with the next generation if he did come back 15 years later. But his clock is running out, and right now he hasn't shown an ability to meld defense and offense together. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. Either I'm offensively great and I'm out jabbing you with my length and bludgeoning you with my strength like I did with Joe Parker, Joseph Parker, and with Daniel Dubois, or I'm completely defensive and I'm just a shell that you can well away on. That's what Joe Joyce is at a crossroads with. He can't fight in the same style. Or he can't meld those two styles together. It's one or the other. And we saw it in this fight. It's a switch. It's the flip of a switch that he has to flip on and off. If he wants to be offensive versus if he wants to be defensive. He can't fight like that. He can't win like that. And his chances of a title are absolutely gone. They're gone. Unless he goes, like with anybody, unless he goes on an absolute mammoth tear and runs through Hergovich, and Sanchez, and every other contending heavyweight, Ruiz, Ortiz, all of them, unless he does that, he ain't got a shot at the title anymore. His title opportunity is done. His window is closed. That's it. He wants to come back, and I hope he comes back. Well, let's look at reality in the world of boxing. He is done. Frank Warren's not going to walk away from him, at least I hope not. But despite that being the case, he's done in terms of championship aspirations. At this point, he is out of the picture completely. 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 There's no way he's back in the title picture for a good little while. Potentially till retirement. Or now used as a journeyman or as a gatekeeper for the next generation of heavyweights like Jared Anderson. That's exactly what we can look at. That's what's going on with Joe Joyce. He can't fight fundamentally. His footwork is laughable. His defense is utterly horrible. And his chin, the hour has now run out. His ability to take punches now may be gone. Or, let's be perfectly honest. Maybe nobody was able to actually land on Joyce with the necessary level of power to hurt him in the first place. Daniel Dubois was the heaviest puncher that Joyce has faced in his career up until John. But Daniel Dubois was still undersized in terms of Joe Joyce. That's a fact. Even with Daniel Dubois still having legitimate power. Again, we saw we did what he did with the body shot on Usyk, which I still think is a body shot. It's still a situation where somebody had the power but did not have the technical ability to land it on a consistent basis. Now you go against somebody that actually had the power, but could have a consistent way to land it on you. Oh, you can't take it. You can't take it. When you got a puncher that could punch on your level, like Daniel Dubois when he fought you, but had the legitimate technical ability to get to you consistently, you can't take it. You ain't faced somebody that can set you up like that. Joe Joyce in his short career hasn't faced anybody that can have the IQ ring presence and the countering ability as well as the ability to set up what they want to do on their opponent on the fly. Then He ain't faced somebody like that yet. He hasn't. Oh, you want to say Joseph Parker? Okay, I'll give you Joseph Parker. And Joseph Parker was landing clean on Joe Joyce. Problem was he didn't have the power to be able to withstand or to be able to hurt him he didn't have the power to hurt him when joe joyce fought joseph parker parker was landed flush utterly phenomenal shots in terms of getting through the guard of joyce but joyce was able to walk through because he wasn't affecting it he didn't do anything he didn't have the power but once you face off against somebody that had the same level of speed as joe joyce In terms of big bang junk, as well as the power to hurt you legitimately, now what are you going to do? And the answer is nothing because when you can't walk forward, what do you do? You walk back, and you have the same problem that Don Deontay Wilder has as a boxer you can't fight going backwards. At least now we've seen. Wilder be able to we know Wilder can at least land the knockout straight right from any position forward or backwards as a boxer he's still not there yet as from a well rounded perspective we understand but at least we know that he can land and he can muster offense from moving backwards even though that's his Achilles heel and he can still take you out like he did against Robert Helanius. he can't do it in terms of Joe Joyce He doesn't have that ability in him. He doesn't have that level of skill in him. And that's why his window for a title is done. And that's what he is as a fighter now. A one-dimensional, predictable juggernaut who, yes, he is tough, but if you reach the requisite threshold of power and you understand how to land consistently on his horrible defense, you got him. You got him. And Zhang made it look even easier than the than the first time around. And it's due to the fact that both he outsmarted him, he lured him into a trap. He's got legitimate world level power, and Joyce's chin is now no longer the same. His chin isn't doesn't have the same level of lifespan anymore. Anyway. That doesn't take away from how phenomenal this knockout is. We've never seen Joyce, again, hit the canvas, let alone get a one-hitter quitter done to him. Known as one of the better chins in all of boxing. It is, Zhang was the guy to break that. That's what makes this incredible. Zhang was the man to do the unthinkable on Joe Joyce. Not beat him, knock him out. Make that chin null and void. He was the guy that did that. Accumulation and all. He was the man that had enough power to make that accumulation of shots on Joe Joyce come to uh come come to a head. He's the one that that cracked the impenetrable rock. He's the he is the boulder that cracked the mountain. He's the He He's the, the yell that caused an avalanche. Whatever analogy you want to you use. He's the guy that that dismantled Joyce's chin. And Joyce won't be the same after this. He won't. He just won't. Joyce won't be the same after this. Because now his main level of defense is gone. He can't walk through shots anymore. Unless it's against a non-puncher. He can't walk through shots anymore. It's impossible. He can't do it. Especially if he wants to keep being in contention for a title. He can't do it anymore. It's impossible for him to compete for a title and walk through shots. Because everybody at this stage in his career, if he wants to get back into title contention, all can crack. All can punch. And all can knock him out. Now that Zhang has ruined the chin of Joe Joyce. Or at least shown that it's vulnerable. And weakened it. At minimum, that's what he's done. And Zhang, speaking on Zhang, Zhang is now shown, one, that it isn't a fluke that he got the knockout, or that he got the stoppage in the first one. Two, that his power is legitimately world level. And three, that he is somebody that everybody in the heavyweight division needs to look out for. His hand speed, coupled with his IQ, coupled with his now seemingly improved level of stamina bodes a tricky task for anybody in the heavyweight division and he called out Tyson Fury and I would love to see that fight yes we know he's fighting Francis Ngannou nobody wants that fight we're all going to watch that fight absolutely but once that's done, and let's say he doesn't fight Usyk afterwards, though the rumors are swirling around that that fight may happen in December with the whole Christmas wish list that his promoter or one of his managers keeps going around telling everybody that, oh, he, they'll bring up a, a, a Christmas present that we won't ever forget in Saudi, potentially. He's trying to be cryptic instead of saying what's out and out potentially going to happen. But let's say that doesn't happen, which... Right now, I'm banking on it won't until it actually is announced and signed and promoted. And until we see the first press conference. Until that happens, if Fury doesn't fight Usyk, I would love to see him fight Zhang. I would love it. Zhang's already been the man he already won it and deserved it. I forget for he's either one of the belts for Usyk or for, for the belt of Fury. But either way, I would love to see him fight Fury. Love it. Size and size on par with him. Power, more powerful than Tyson Fury. Yes, he is. is. Zhang is stronger than Tyson Fury. Though though Tyson Fury is bigger. But with the IQ of Zhang coupled with the power and if the stamina holds true, and his ring IQ that he has around him, getting the silver medalist in the Olympics. This man knows what he's doing in the ring. He just ain't gotten the opportunity that we've seen other boxers get, though his talent was sufficient. Hergovich was the first fight that we all got to see him in his full array of talent. And I believe he got robbed, as many others do. But that was the first widespread level of notoriety that we got to see from him. Joyce was the biggest notoriety that Zhang's gotten in his career. But Hergovich was the first. And the first for me as well. And we got to see Zhang jo- show phenomenal boxing ability and a skill set that is of the elite. Hand speed is great. IQ's great. Defense, it can be phenomenal when he's on it. Now he showed that he can have distance control and can better pace himself and not let himself get lost in slugfest and have the ability to show what he needs to do without showing his opponent what he needs to do. If that makes sense. In fact, let me rephrase that. He has the ability to lay traps for opponents while by showing that he needs to do one thing. Again, like with Joe Joyce throwing that big straight left. While in the back of his mind. Setting up the real threat, which is the counter. Zhang has that ability. He can be multifaceted. He's got a good jab. He's got enough power in that jab to keep you at bay. He's a southpaw as well with quick hands and deceptively good distance control. All of that, covered with the improved level of stamina, if this in fact does show true for the rest of his career. Oh, he's a threat to anybody in the division. Anybody. Anybody. Jared Hurd, Sanchez, Usyk, Fury, even Wilder. Though I think Wilder and his hand speed and his ability to land flush on Zhang will be too much. Zhang can't fight in the same style that Fury fought when he fought Wilder and potentially have the same level of success. It's possible. It is possible. It's absolutely possible. That's how good Jonk actually is. I'm not saying he's going to beat, he would beat Wilder. Fending, I would think that Wilder would eventually catch him and knock him out. But that's just because Wilder has just shown time and time again that that is what he's able to do on a consistent basis. Every opponent that he's touched, that he has touched with that right hand has hit the cameras. And that's been everybody in his career. The only man to survive has been Tyson Fury. Do I think Zhang's going to have that same level of success in terms of survive the right hand? No. Do I think Zhang could still hurt Wilder? Absolutely. Absolutely. Could he put Wilder in trouble? Absolutely. He can do it to Wilder and anybody else in the division. He is that strong. He is that smart. He is that adaptable. And he, if stamina bodes well, and still improves. He is that good. He's that good. And I would love to see. John fought Tyson Fury. If it does in fact happen. And I hope they don't wait him out. Because he's already 40 years old. I don't want another. Louis, King Kong. Luis Ortiz situation. But a constantly waiting and waiting and waiting. Beating everybody left right and center. Crafty Southpaw. With power and IQ. And the ability to set traps and hand speed. Only difference is Zhang is good at catching punches and blocking while moving forward. Ortiz was good at head movement and slipping and countering and punching off angle. But both of them similarly are phenomenal in terms of how they can fight. There are some similarities with them. And because that's the case, what happened? Both of them got avoided for multiple years until Wilder gave gave Ortiz a shot and nearly lost both times before knocking him out. Com- incredibly competitive fight in the first fight when he nearly got knocked out in that one until he knocked him out in the later rounds with, again, a right hand and uppercut. And then, second fight got outboxed all seven rounds until Wilder landed that one shot, and they ended the fight. But gave him the opportunity after being avoided all these years. Now, Zhang is in the same situation where he has the right to have a shot at a title. But will he get a shot at the title is a question that boxing politics may not answer until it's too little too late. But I hope that's not the case. He's going to have to make a choice whether to stay active or you wait and sit on the mandatory, and it might be smart for him to stay active because ring rust at that age can diminish everything that you got. Even if even if that means fighting way less competition, just staying active can be enough to hold his skills in such refined state to the point that he can compete legitimately for a title shot when it comes around, which I hope is sooner rather than later. But I hope it's after. Fury and Usyk. But still, I hope it happens in But Zhang is the real deal. Do not let him fly under the radar if you are a boxing fan. Don't let him. Don't let that happen. This man is too diverse in terms of his skill set and it's too fun to watch to let him go by the wayside. China power is absolutely real. That Chinese power that he has is legitimate. It can take on the world. And I can't wait to see it, absolutely. But with that being said, this has been another episode of The Watch Up What with me, Jean-Luc Rush. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, I almost forgot to say at the top of the show with all the Damian Lillard news and stuff coming about, leave a like on the video, comment your thoughts and opinions, subscribe to the channel, share the show with everybody that you know to build up this empire together, absolutely. But I've been Jean-Luc Welch. Y'all have been beautiful and wonderful. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. We're available on every podcasting platform. Find us. Give us five stars so that we can make this show even more widespread. Y'all be safe. Up until next time, peace and love. We are out of here.